Climate Justice, Y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision-making table. Because of that, we decided to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South that are hit the hardest by the climate crisis. We're using good old-fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to transform the region. The usage of y'all in the title is on purpose. We are honoring our Southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. Climate justice, y'all. It's real, it's here, and it's about time. Y'all hear what we have to say. Hey y'all, my name is Abigail Franks and I am joined by the fabulous co-host Marisha Malcolm. As folks already know or have learned from previous episodes, when it comes to recovering from a disaster, it seems like the most vulnerable folks in a community are left behind. In fact, when Hurricane Ida struck the U.S. in 2022, the Homa Nation communities in the bayous of Louisiana were one of the hardest hit areas. Yet when it came to recovering, they were essentially left to fend for themselves. Indigenous organizer Clarice Frollo and others show us that with the strength of community and remembering Indigenous wisdom, we can weather the storm. Climate justice, y'all. It's real. It's here. And it's about time. We listen to folks like Clarice Frollo. All right, let's get started with the show. All right. If you could please introduce yourself, your organization and where you're coming in from, Clarice. Uh, I'm Clarice Frollo. I'm um, I'm coming in from uh, Grand Bois, Louisiana. Uh, about 10 miles south of, uh, of Homa. I'm uh, a citizen of the United Homa Nation, also a council person on the United Homa Nation's tribal council. I work for Taproot Earth, um, and I'm a senior uh, advisor and also a regional organizer. It's so nice to have you on the show or the episode with us, Clarice. Um, so after reading about the Homa Nation on its web on y'all's website, um, it's compo- composed of folks with close ties to the water and the land. Can you please tell us a little bit more about that relationship and how it's seen today? Yes, uh, our communities have always been uh, partial to the, the water. Our ancestors traveled by water. Um, the tribe where we're settled at today is on the five bayous of Southeast Louisiana. Uh, but our, our tribe is 19,000 strong and we represent all the way from Morgan City to Venice, Louisiana. So the most of the coast is uh, is, is home nation territory. So with that being said, our ancestors uh, traveled by, by pirog or small boats to reach these, these other uh, fingers of the bayous, the five fingers. Um, at that point, they had no roads. So that was their, that's their form of travel. And with erosion at this point, our road, our, our bayous and communities are, are much further, but then also we have access by roads. So but even though they look close, the communities look close, they're not very close. But by water, they were close for, for our ancestors. But um, we were we people, water people. We uh, live off the land and water. Uh, most of our citizens are commercial fishermen, which means uh, from each district or each area, they have different forms of, um, of commercial fishing. It could be shrimp, crab, oyster, fish. You know, in general, that's how we we've got most of our proteins from the water. And we also were farmers. So um, in the community I live in, it, it was uh, it was a high ridge called Gravois, meaning big woods. And um, so with that being said, um, we were storm protectors. 
for people living on the low-lying areas of the parishes of Terrebonne and Lafouche. Uh, my grandfather and grandmother had huge gardens. Uh, we would lease property. My grandfather would lease other properties besides the 28 acres of land that he owned. And that was to produce corn, okra, potatoes, beans. And so my grandmother was from a community of, uh, of, of a bayou community. And, and her family would more or less barter seafood for the fresh vegetables. So she kept her way of life as a child into her married life. And so we were very lucky to have the produce and also the, 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 uh, the riches of the waters. So with y'all both um, using the land and the water and also being just frontline communities, of course, what threats have you seen or experienced or even stories um, that you've heard um, as home and nation, especially with climate change? Climate change is a big part of my life. Um, you know, it's we've I've seen the changes in, in my my years, uh, especially with the 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 latest or the, the first Native American community to be uh, relocated to a different part of our districts. So I've seen the disappearance of land, mass amounts of land, which taking those people off of Algene Charles means that they no longer have the right to live there, but they can uh, bring a boat and, and fish, but most of their boats stay in the water. So it's, it's, it's complicated to, to try to see how these people are going to survive being relocated. <clears throat> they took them out of freshwater, I mean, saltwater areas and relocated them to freshwater almost in the city. So it's going to be a difficult change for them. And then for me, I've noticed uh, higher uh, storm surges in our communities and then with them building the Marganza to the Gulf, which is a levee system, makes it very difficult for uh, for water to go back where it came from. Usually the water rises, comes in quick and leaves really quick. But with the levees and the floodgates, some communities are being trapped on, still with water until they open up the floodgates. The water has to go somewhere so it could easily get <clears throat> closed in, in, in in our communities in which that leads to land loss and also uh, our trees lacking proper fresh water and they stay in salt water. Man, so it really sounds like, well, I, I think some, some folks don't realize that with climate change and with all this loss, um, a lot of folks like the Homa Nation and others, um, the culture is so deeply intertwined with the environment like there's not really i mean and so there's there's that loss there and i i just i it, i don't know i just i don't think people really consider that and so i wanted to bring that up and you talked about people being trapped with the water i mean could you tell us about any recent experiences you have with disasters i know that um for example hurricane ida hit your community in 2022 and that was really huge. Um, so how do, how does your community, sorry, what are the recent experiences that you've had with disasters? In uh, well, the first, the first uh, experience I had as a, uh, a young woman of 19 years old was when Hurricane Ida hit 
not Ida, I'm sorry, uh, you, uh, Juan hit the coast of Cocodrie, Louisiana. It came up Terrebonne Bay and it bounced around. So what it did, it pushed in water into the communities. So as long as it stayed offshore or in the waters, it was keep, it was it kept pushing water forward to our lands and our in our neighborhoods. <clears throat> that was the first time ever that I'd seen my community have three and four feet of water. So after that event, it seemed like if a storm was headed to Texas, we would we knew automatically that we would have that we would have water in our yards for two and three weeks <clears throat> and that with Hurricane Ida, the water came up really quick, which normally doesn't happen in my community, is the way that the storm hit us. It hit the neighboring community of Ponishan with, with heavy wind forces. And when the wind changed directions from the north, and we after the, the eye passed, the wind changed to the north, and we had our water went down. But our people were used to having water come in, and then water receding. <clears throat> but in the recent years, well, the, the years before that, uh, you know, we were inundated with uh, flood waters coming in and staying for two weeks sometimes. Hurricane Ida. Um, like I said, hit us pretty hard. I think it was the hardest storm I've seen here in a, as a resident of Grenoble. And, you know, like I said, we were at one point the, uh, the safe spot for people living on the coastal bayous. And, you know, our, our, my family would house people who were living uh, very close to the Gulf. They would bring all their equipment or their livestock, whatever they needed to bring to the hard lands where I lived where I live today. And now uh, we're not much of a safe haven anymore due to uh, erosion. And also, like I said earlier, the, the Margansa to the Gulf. When Ida hit, we stayed in, in our community. When we evacuated and came home, um, we were without water, we were without gas, and we were out, we were out of, like, we didn't have any electricity. I haven't seen the destruction of our trees. Like, uh, I mean, I remember reading Katrina, that didn't affect us as bad as Ida did. Ida hit us directly. So, um, and people don't realize that we are the buffer zone. We are the the uh, the buffer to our, the home, in, the, 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 home, the, home, the city of Homa, the city of Thibodeau, uh, and, and probably the city of New Orleans. So the Native American community is on the front lines when it comes to storms, you know, because it's going to come out the Gulf and it's going to hit one of our Native communities. And usually we are the last ones to receive any assistance and we are the last ones to get our service or our utilities back on because we're not very important to the cities. So um, we, it may take us sometimes a month to maybe seven weeks without electricity and other necessities that we need. It's very seldom we get uh, any other services like Red Cross come in, but Ida for sure, Red Cross pass through our community back and forth every day, twice a day to help a neighboring community and then stop in our small community of Grenoble, 300 people. Um, so we, uh, we... Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt let me make sure i'm hearing everything correctly because 
you know, this may be, but I'll say you've told this story before and, um, but it really doesn't detract from how horrific that is. You're saying that Hurricane Ida was one of the worst storms that has hit your community that you've lived there like in your lifetime. And while the city and the state and others were recovering and checking in on neighboring communities, y'all were left to fend for yourself. Am I hearing that correctly? Correctly. It's correct. And good grief. And I'm also hearing that like, what's heartbreaking too, it's, it's the, I think the water issues in particular are especially heartbreaking considering how deeply water is entrenched and intertwined um, with your community. I think there's that that's there, but I mean, so it used to be like y'all would you have the water come in and y'all would have it come out, but now it just kind of stays. And now your electricity and water is being is like cut off during storms. Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's not cut off. You know, it's usually it, sorry, not cut off. Like it won't. It's like it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like not returned yeah. to service. <laughs> The power lines are down, and, and like I said, you have to remember where where the uh, the buffers are. So when the storm's going to hit, it's these low lying communities of Native American people who get hit first. So, and we're not that important, according to the state officials. You know, we take the brunt of it, and then we're left behind to fend for ourselves for uh, uh, a good amount of time. <clears throat> so. They'll put on the power, they'll get the poles back up in, in, in the city of Poma, which is 10 miles south of me, uh, north of me. They'll have the power on there because they have businesses. In our small communities, you know, we've lost a lot of supermarkets on our low lying bayous. And, you know, a couple of schools have closed because of the, the, the effect that we take from being the buffer zones or the barrier islands. And we no longer have barrier islands off of our coast. And so the next barrier would be the communities, the Native American communities living off the five bayous. So either way it goes, if the storm's coming head on to us or it's going to Texas, we catch the dirty side of the storm. And so with that being said, they will not, utility companies will not come into our communities first. We stayed nine days without having running water. We stayed uh, probably two months or three months, close to three months without electricity. Uh, and like I said, Red Cross came through my community to get to another community, not once stopped to see if we needed hot meals or any kind of meal. Um, we were lucky enough to have friends in the New Orleans area who knew chefs that were sending hot food to two communities, our community of Canabua and also the Native American community of Pontchartrain. We would meet them in certain spots and they'd have big trays of food, hot food for us every night. They would do it once a day, but at least we had a hot meal. So <clears throat> a nonprofit organization came into the community. We had a couple of them come in to assist with clearing clear the debris off the roads, out of our yards. And um, from there, they decided they was going to rebuild um, a little office space to uh to make three little offices so we could do FEMA applications, uh, FEMA appeals and SBA process of uh, the ISBA uh, loan submissions. So my daughter, myself and my, and my daughter-in-law 
we were we were running on generator power, uh, solar generator power, to be able to assist our people in the community to be able to apply for FEMA services. And and you know, people often wonder why we rely on FEMA uh, for services. It's because most of our people are commercial fishermen; they cannot afford the cost of uh, insuring their homes. You know, and people are gonna ask, well, why you're there? Why are you still there? Uh, why don't you leave? Well, this is, it's in our DNA. This is where we're from. This is the only life we know is to live on the bayous. And so it's hard to leave your home. Um, we know we know how to deal with the storms. We usually let the water recede, we clean our houses and we do our own work. We don't sit back for anybody to come and assist. Everybody helps each other. And that's how we recover every storm. Wow, Clarice, that is such a sad story. I'm, I'm, and I'm at the end. I, I love that community. Really, is the one that brings y'all together and brings the restoration. But it sucks that y'all don't even have state representation to even get the proper care that y'all need, the proper restoration efforts that y'all need for your community. Um, I'm gonna let Abigail jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, but I want to say that, like, y'all building a resiliency hub is so cool. Right. <laughs> and, it inspired me to do that. Uh, you know, honestly, the governor came in and he sent the National Guardian to help us probably, excuse me, 15 days after the storm. And they brought in a fuel truck for us because it was almost two hours for us to find fuel away from our house to drive. They sent us ice, MREs, water uh, and then at the governor's office somebody at the governor's office set us up with generators for people who didn't have generators gas tanks and fans i think we did 25 generators 25 fans extension cords and gas cans to help us uh kind of be okay because um, luckily for me, we knew somebody who knew the governor's, somebody in the governor's office that was able to assist. Other than that, I don't know what this community would have done. It would have been a real hardship not to have that, even though we had suffered for almost two weeks without. But all in all, what the people did, they shared the stuff that they had, their food that they had in the freezer before they went bad. So they would um, cook for the community and then share it. Whatever you had, you shared with your neighbors. Um, you know, even when I was still evacuated, my next door neighbors lost their roof. The whole roof came off the house. And I told my neighbor's son, go to my pool deck. There's a freezer on there. Go get food out for the family. Because their electricity had been out for quite some time. And, and I just said, go, you, you know, I know you're there. Go get what you need, doesn't matter what you take. If you don't take it, it's going to spoil. It won't, it won't be any good, so just cook it. So that's what they were doing. They were cooking from each other's freezers, our freezers together. And so when it came time to rebuild my, my pool deck to make offices, we had volunteers from the community to come help my husband gut it, gut the, um, the, the little place that I had. Of course, I had still a big hole in my kitchen roof. My French doors blew open, so my dining room was a disaster area. 
But what we did, we focused more or less on just covering our roof with tarp, get those office spaces together and work to help other people get what they needed at the time. So what was the, how long did this take for your community to, you know, we say be restored after the storm, but I mean, I know that recovery is an ongoing process that lasts years, but how long did this take? And yeah, how long did it take? Well, after the governor came in, the governor came in and meet with us. And, you know, we were shocked that that we had made enough noise for the governor to come with, with, with the FEMA officials, uh, with Coast Guard and all these other high-ranking officials, and even some former and um, uh, former politicians came in and they, they were acting like, you know, they had no idea this was going on. And the crazy part is it happens all the time. So once the governor left, I don't know if he sent word to the linemen to get our post back up, but we, it didn't take us, it took us maybe another month to have our, 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 our electricity restored. The water was restored a week after the governor left. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, as we were sitting, my husband and I was sitting out on the porch, no electricity, just... Uh, listening to the quietness of our community and thinking how we have pulled together and, you know, um, and we were going to survive this, but there was a better way. There's another way we could do this. And I asked my husband to build me a replica of my great grandmother's house that was built in, in the 1800s and that my cousin Monique Verdant shows in her books and my Louisiana love of uh, documentary. And I said, I would love to be able to build a replica of that house and use it as a healing and a safe house. So my husband is a carpenter. So he said, we're gonna, we, we can do that. And so we can be equipped to handle refrigerator, I'm sorry, freezers, refrigerators, a charging station, but people who need to recharge their phones and um, just healing, come and talk, sit with us, talk to us, and see what we can do to, you know, when you're in that state of nothing going on, there's no traffic passing, there's no noise outside, it's just pitch black. And all you see is dim lights from your neighbors. Uh, you're able to focus on what's real. And it gives you a clear sense of that. Our ancestors were visiting, were visitors. They would visit each other quite often and because there was no other activities to do. <clears throat> and um, so we found ourselves doing the same thing that our, our ancestors did and they call it a baye. Like we were visiting each other and so we knew what was going on in each other's uh, spaces of who needed what and how and what whatever else was uh, uh, like uh, one person needed a front door or a window blew out then we knew we'd get together and you'll fix whatever was needed or somebody an elder needed needed uh, the pins so we would search out for things like that so we was able to come together and um find things we had in common and also help each other out in in this difficult time so Clarice, this episode is titled Ancestral and Indigenous Ecological Knowledge. Um, and it focuses on the roles and climate adaptation amid worsening disasters. And 
And I know that your community, based off the stories that you're sharing with us right now, your community experiences this and they even have knowledge about it. What insights can you can we draw and how can we integrate this wisdom into present day community resilience? So how can we integrate some of the things that you all do and and move them into other communities that are not just indigenous? You know, for me is it's uh, the feeling of um, not being not being selfish is one thing, and and you know we were always taught to share and never take more than what you need. That's in my DNA. That's what we were taught as children growing up in indigenous families. Take only what you need, and whatever you have left over, share with other people. So for me, that means make sure that my neighbors are okay. Make sure that, you know, we're taken care of, but you have to keep your mental health intact also. You know, we have, we all have meltdowns, especially during disasters. We all do. But as long as the other person can be strong, uh, we can have a meltdown. The other, another person has to be strong enough to get us through our meltdowns. And to me, it's, is I, I do anything my neighbors need. I will make sure that I can, uh, that I'll find somebody, if I can't do it, I'll find somebody to help them. So we have to come together as one during a disaster. Forget about the, the hardships, other hardships. Forget about any issues that you've had, maybe a little argument. That's all behind us. You have to look forward. We're the only ones who are gonna help each other survive at that point. So we depend on each other and we work together. So that makes it, um, you know, easier for us, and people and people in my community know that my door is always open, my phone is always on. So whatever is needed, um, they're welcome to come here and and we share whatever we have. Wow, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so to close this episode, first of all, thank you for everything, um, and thank you for leading us through this. I could spend all day asking more questions about the resiliency hubs, um, but. In order to respect your time, I want to ask, since there's a lot of work that needs to be done, especially with, you know, like not only adapting to the disasters, but recovering from them as well, and also enduring the emotional labor that comes with it, this can be really draining. Um, and so I say all that to say, please tell us what gives you hope. And if there's any information that you want that you didn't get to today or you want to include in this episode, this is your time to shine. You know, um, in 1994, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1994, I was faced with a decision to put myself out there in front of the media and fight one of the biggest oil and gas companies in, uh, globally. And I was 28 years old. And I often wondered why I was doing this. And then I remembered that my great-grandfather took my grandfather to live here in Granbois in 1915 due to them being relocated from a major storm that hit Grand Isle, a golden meadow. He moved us to this high track of land, and this was going to be our safe spot. So with that being said, then I realized that I'm here for a reason. I'm in, I'm in this little community for a reason. My great-grandfather could see it. I didn't, I didn't feel it until 1994. 
so there's a reason that I'm here and I have that's my hope they, I'm, I'm here for a reason I just may not know the whole reason yet but we all have that purpose and my purpose um, is to protect my land my people and my community 